If you want to open up your Bible to three places this morning, John chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and Genesis chapter 1. Starting a new series, we're going to make our way slowly but surely through the Gospel of John. And just to make sure that we're always focused, we might take a break here and there uh, throughout this calendar year, but we are going to finish it. But today is the very first day. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 18 this morning. And to understand really the whole of Scripture, but especially the Gospel of John, you need to be able to embrace some level of mystery. Now, in one hand, accepting mystery and even inviting mystery and longing for mystery is something that all of us feel. I, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but uh, the Avengers Endgame is out right now. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. Uh, it supposedly in the next month or two will be the most seen movie ever in the history of the world. And all of it is preposterous. I mean, just in the sense of like, none of it is real. Like there's a talking raccoon for crying out loud, uh, space travel, just all, all of it is just totally ridiculous. And yet more people will see this movie than have ever seen a movie in a theater in the history of the world, because there is a part of us that is drawn to things that we can't understand, things that really don't make sense. I mean, think about some of the best-selling books of all time. Most of those are of fantasy, they're fiction, they are things that really couldn't happen in real life. We like a good mystery, something that we can't um, reason out. But when it comes to our actual lives and real things, we don't tolerate mystery. In fact, we reject it in all of its forms. But the Gospel of John is going to bring, I think, both parts of us together. Because John is very intelligent. He was the son of Zebedee. He was probably the very first disciple of Jesus. He is one of the ones responsible for Peter, who we all know, eventually becoming a disciple. Uh, he was completely dedicated and he was brilliant. He's going to engage our minds in the pages of his gospel in my mind, like no other gospel. He's very specific and uh, weaves history and mystery uh, together. And so we're going to be engaged with our minds and we're going to be engaged with our faith. And I think John is the perfect person to bring that together for us. And so you're going to have to accept a little bit of mystery. In fact, even in today's uh, passage, there's going to be some things that are very clear. Um, it's going to be obvious what he's saying, but there'll also be sort of hard to accept because they don't make a lot of sense here on earth from our perspective. So let's start. John chapter 1. This is his introduction to Jesus. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So I ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and you can see why. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Again, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning one day. So 
Put yourself in John's shoes. He's been a follower of Jesus. He was an eyewitness at the crucifixion. He was the only of Jesus' 12 disciples that was there when Jesus died. It was John who Jesus entrusted his mother to at the cross. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection. And now he's given his life in faithful service to Jesus. He's been a pastor, a pastor of pastors, a shepherd for his entire life. Now he's at the end of his life. Most scholars believe that John was the last gospel written. In fact, one of the last books of the New Testament written. And so he's reflecting over his whole life and he sits down to give his record of the life of Jesus. And how does he start it? I mean, you got to think that that opening sentence has a lot of buildup. It's got a lot of years of faith on it. And how does he begin? He begins in a big way. The other Gospels, they begin with uh, the beginning of the story, uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but not John. He gives a theological statement in the beginning. He, He feels so strong about who Jesus is that the only way he can start his Gospel is to reach to the very first page of his Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. Now, he doesn't use Jesus' name here in the beginning, but it's clear by the time we get to the end of this chapter, he's talking about Jesus. Why on earth would he call Jesus the Word instead of just using his name? Well, again, he's trying to make a point. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, I'd ask you to turn there as well. Listen to how this letter starts. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. So God has in the past spoken through prophets. Verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So one of two things seems like it happened. Either the author of Hebrews, and we're not sure who it is, the author of Hebrews has heard John preach or has read John's gospel or John read the beginning of Hebrews because they're saying the same thing when God wanted to speak. When he wanted the earth to know exactly what he was thinking and feeling. When he wanted to make a statement to all of us, he sent his son. Jesus is the word of God. And it says three things in verse 1. First, Jesus existed before creation. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So before there was a beginning of the heavens and the earth, Jesus Existed. Uh, And what John means is he pre-existed. He has always been. He is from everlasting to everlasting. The second point he's making is that Jesus is distinct from God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's an ancient heresy called modalism. And modalism catches on because it's easy to understand. In the scripture, we see God, one God, revealed in three distinct persons. If you try to just try to explain that over Chipotle after lunch, it's hard. You just end up going, I don't know. Right now, you can go to seminary for your whole life and go, I don't know about the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Right. So what's easier to believe is that in the Old Testament, it's God, the Father. And then between the Old Testament and the New Testament, he turns into God, the Son, Jesus. And then in between the end of John's gospel and the beginning of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, Jesus turns into the Holy Spirit. So one God, but he's just playing three different roles in three different periods of time. That's called modalism and it's not wrong. It's not right because of John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, they were both there. The word Jesus was with God. 
But then he takes it a step further, and he says, and the word was God. So his third theological point is that Jesus, the Son, is God. Jesus himself said that in chapter 10. We'll read months from now. Best case scenario. (laughs) He said, the Father and I are one. Uh, He said in another place, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. One of his disciples, Thomas, uh, after the resurrection, which, by the way, Jesus is still alive this week. I don't know. We celebrated it last week. I just wanted to say that out loud. Still alive. Still alive. Everything that was true last Sunday is still true today. And on a resurrection afternoon, Jesus appeared to his disciples. You know, first he appeared to the, 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 those ladies, those disciples, early in the morning. They're the ones who went to the, the empty tomb. Later on, he appeared to the twelve. They weren't there. But Thomas, one of the twelve, uh, was having the bathroom break. Or we don't know where he was, uh, but he wasn't there. And then he gets back, and it's the world's worst case of FOMO. They said, Jesus, Jesus came. And he said, no, he didn't. I can't believe it unless I put my fingers in his wounds. That's the only way I'm going to believe this. Well, Jesus offers him grace and does appear to him again. And it says that, in, this is in John chapter 20, Thomas falls down and he says about Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now, if you were a first century Jewish person, you had such high respect of God. You didn't go around ascribing Godness to a person that you could see, feel, and touch. So for Thomas to say that in public, in front of a lot of people, he had to be convinced. And that's what John is saying. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, but the Word was God as well. Verse 2, and he was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that had been created. So John goes even a step further. Not only was Jesus there in the beginning before everything was created, God and Jesus partnered together in creation. Jesus had a role. So this separates us from the Mormons. The Mormons are some of the nicest people on earth. But the Mormons believe that all of us who have ever been born will ever be born. We had a life that we don't remember. Before everything was created on earth, we were all there together, and Jesus was just one of us. He was just a regular person. There's Curtis Jones of Southwest Missouri, there's Jesus of Nazareth, and then there was you. But Jesus was better than us, and so God picked him, and then because God picked him, then Jesus became the Son. But John's Gospel, chapter 1, says, no, 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 it was the Father and the Son equal. The Son was God And the Son created everything. There's nothing that's ever been created that was not created by Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 says the same thing through the Apostle Paul, but takes it even a step further than that and says, In Christ all things hold together. That means not only do we owe our creation to God, the fact that we're still here being held together, our joints and blood and marrow and atoms and molecules and cells, all of that, Hebrews chapter 1 says we're upheld, we're held together by the word of his power. So so not only did he create us, he is sustaining us right now. And for some reason he got distracted, we just fall apart. The whole universe would, according to Hebrews chapter 1. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that had been created. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, the word life is one of John's favorite words. In fact, he blows every other New Testament writer away in its use. It's a, it's a life word for him. 
And the word life occurs in two distinct ways in the New Testament. Uh, and remember, the, the New Testament was not written in English. It was written in Greek. When Alexander the Great went to conquer the world, he spread his ideas. He also spread his language. And so the New Testament is written in Greek. It's now been translated to us in English. And so when we read the word life, it's just always life. But if you read it in its original language, there are two words that are used in the New Testament. Bios is your biological life. Right? That's a natural life. That you, you got that through physical birth. But Zoe is uh, your... Not biological life. It's supernatural life that God has and that God shares with people in Christ. And you receive it through spiritual birth. And the life that John is talking about here, when he says, in him was life, he's saying in him was Zoe. Now we already know in him was bios because everything that's been created was created through him. So you owe your biological life to Jesus, but we also owe our spiritual life to Jesus. How does God share with us his supernatural life? Well, John will go on to tell us how later on in chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And just like you have a birthday. My birthday is January 1st, 1981. So depending on who you are, I'm very either very young or very old. You need a spiritual birth. And for me, that happened in the summer of 1992. I can't take you to a specific day. I don't remember the calendar. I wasn't journaling at the time. But I know by the end of that summer, I had been changed by the good news that Jesus had come, that he had offered his life on my behalf, and through his resurrection, I could have everlasting life. I could have Zoe. So you know when your physical birthday was, when you received your bios, but right now, can you think of when your spiritual birth happened? Not that you have to be able to put a specific date or time on it, but are you confident that there was a time where you said, of all the things that I can do with my life, of all the things that I can put my faith in, I choose to put my faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When that happens, you receive this life that John is talking about. And it says that the darkness doesn't overcome that life. I mean, last week, I think probably most of us know what happened in Sri Lanka. People were going to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord just as we did. And, and many of them did not come home because a murderer took their bios. But he did not take their Zoe. And all of us, our, our bios will end in one way or another. I, I hope I'm not the first person to tell you that. But if you have believed in Christ, your life can never be taken from you. It is everlasting, just as Jesus is everlasting. Verse 6, And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now he's talking about John the Baptist, and we're not going to spend any time on John the Baptist today because that's what next week's message is about, starting in verse 19. So we're just going to skip over it. But if you're following along, and I hope that you are in the back of your listening guide, there are some places for you to fill in. Number one, 
This is an introduction to the life of Jesus. This, it says Jesus is the word of God. That's number one. Number two, Jesus had a witness. That's John the Baptist. That's next week. Number three, Jesus was not recognized by Israel. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So remember, Jesus created everything, and then God sent Jesus into creation, but they didn't recognize him. Right now at the Museum of Fine Arts, there's a Vincent van Gogh display. I'm acting like I've been there. I haven't. Not going to go. It's not me, but I'm pretending that it is, so just go with me. You can imagine one of those paintings, painted by the hand of Vincent van Gogh, saying no, we're, no. Not, not one of his paintings. That's what John chapter 1 is saying. The art did not recognize the artist. The creation did not recognize the creator. And it says his own people didn't receive him. If you were a first century Israelite, you took pride in being able to trace your lineage back to Abraham. Because Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And God chose him. Abraham was not the best Christian of all the Christians on earth at that time. There were no Christians on earth at that time. And Abraham probably worshipped a lot of gods, same as everybody else in his hometown. But for whatever reason, God in his sovereign grace said, Abraham, if you will obey me, if you'll leave your home and you'll just kind of go with me, I will make you the father of a great nation. Right now you're just a dude, but I will make you something great. I will make you something special. And Abraham does, and he has a family, and his family has a family. Eventually we know them as the people of Israel, and they took a lot of pride in being able to trace their lineage, their heritage, their physical biology back to Abraham. They were the people of God. So you can imagine feeling that, and God sends this message, this word to his own people first. He didn't send him to North America. He didn't send him to any other place around the world. He didn't send him to Europe. He didn't send him to the UK. He sent Jesus, the word of God, to the people of God, Israel. And when Jesus got there, the art did not recognize the artist. The creation did not recognize the creator. And they rejected him. So it wasn't just that the world rejected Jesus. It was his own people that rejected Jesus. But not everybody did. That's why it says in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So if you're keeping notes with us, the fourth thing, Jesus makes us children of God. Jesus makes us children of God. He gave them the right to be called the children of God. Now, the children of Abraham, the Jewish people, they believed that they had the priority. God loved everybody. God cared about everybody. But they were the first ones in line. You know those people who get to use the priority line at the airport? We hate those people. I mean, if you're one of those people, don't listen. We love you like Christ loves you. But for real, we hate you. Because no one has ever walked through that priority line in humility. Not one time. Have you ever seen somebody just be like, no, head down? No, they puff out their chest. 
and they lift their head high. They look around at all of us commoners, <laughs> all of us vacation people. That's the only reason we go to airports. Pick people up. That's why most of us go to the airport, right? Then they slap down their wallet and cash and miles are just flowing out of it. And they get to go first. They're the most important people. United Airlines makes sure that we all know that and they cooperate with that, in my opinion. So if you're going to the airport tomorrow because of work, go in humility. That's the way Jesus, fly like Jesus would fly. Let somebody, let one of them normal people go first. Just try it on. It'll feel good. That's how Israel viewed God, right? I mean, everybody's welcome on this flight. I'm just first. I'm glad everybody's at the airport, but we get to go first. And God sent them first the son and they rejected it. And now God has thrown open the door. Now it's not about being able to trace your physical heritage back to Abraham. But can you trace your spiritual heritage back to a new birth? How do we get into the family of God? How do we become children? We're born again. We're given Zoe. It's not our bios that makes any difference anymore. Now everybody is welcome. So the question we have to ask as being now members of this new family where everyone is supposed to be welcome, is everyone welcome? For real. Is everyone welcome? Is the alcoholic who calls on the name of Jesus welcome next to you? Even if they're still in transformation transition. Is somebody who's living a life that could only be described as poverty? Are they just as welcome as you are here today? Somebody who's not quite there yet, not getting it right, lurching forward, two steps forward, one step back, three steps back, one step forward, are are, are they welcome? Are people who can trace their bios back to a different Continent, welcome here. Just as welcome as you are. Or do we still have that thing in in us, which is, well, yeah, everybody's welcome, but I have the priority. Jesus says in his kingdom, through his life and death and resurrection, nobody gets the priority. Everybody gets the priority. Everyone is welcome. So we have to welcome everyone too. I think it is the next phase of Bayou City Fellowship that we would go from having a passive welcome to an active welcome. A passive welcome is, I don't mind if you're here. Well, I'm supposed to be here and I don't mind if you are also here. An active welcome is I'm going to find people. I'm going to make sure that they know they're just as welcome as me. Because Jesus did not give us a passive welcome into his family. Can you imagine Jesus saying that about you? When you pass from this bios and fully into your Zoe, and Jesus is giving you the head nod. Giving you that weird eye contact when you go and sit next to him. 
I'm not, I don't mind if you're here. No, he was an active welcome. In fact, he came looking for us. That's what the next verse says in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't just send us an invitation. He hand-delivered it. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now remember, Alexander the Great had not only spread the Greek language, but had spread just the Greek way of life and including Greek history, and the Greeks, as you know, they believed in the gods living on Mount Olympus. And the gods were way up there, and everybody else was way down here. And the things that they did up on the mountain affected regular people down here. So imagine having that culture. Even though if you were a person probably reading the Gospel of John with a Jewish background, uh, you didn't believe in those gods, but you were aware of them. But here, in the opening of his Gospel, he says, God, because remember, the word was God, came down. Not content to get away, but he actually came down and he put on flesh. He became like us. He took on our bios. He was born of a woman so that we might have Zoe, so that we might have his life. And he had glory, glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Next things that I want you to write down from verse 14. Jesus is God's glorious son. And next, Jesus is full of grace and truth. I think we understand the grace part. I think think most of us walk around with a tremendous sense of shame. Shame about what we've done. Shame about what we've not done. Shame about what we should have done. Shame because somebody else did something. And so I think it, for, for most of us, it's easy to look to God for grace. We know we need something that, a grace we cannot give to ourselves. But truth, truth, I, I think we can go lots of different directions for truth in our day-to-day struggle. I've been listening and, and reading some about the loss of the referee in our culture, uh, starting with uh, the, the NBA. Uh, if you watch the NBA playoffs, they're on right now. The Rockets are uh, in it, obviously. Um, if you watch, you'll know a couple things. James Harden, very good. Also, no referee has ever made a good call ever. Every time they blow their whistle, it's wrong. I mean, just watch the poor referees. They look like people hate them, like for real. Not like priority flyers, but like for real, hate them. It seems real personal. We can't hear what they say, but it seems real personal. Right. What's interesting is in the middle of the game, the referee sometimes on some calls will go over and put a set of headphones on with a microphone and we don't hear what they're saying. But we know that they're calling New Jersey because in New Jersey, there's this nondescript building and inside of it uh, is nothing but TVs. And uh, every NBA court has cameras pointed at it. And there are groups of people when NBA games are happening who are watching those games. And when there's a call, they can see it from every angle. And those cameras are always on. So in the Toyota Center right now, there are cameras pointed at the floor. Nobody's playing there right now. But there are cameras pointed at the floor, and those cameras are on in New Jersey somewhere. And so when the referees get on there, those people help them make the right call. And we know statistically, because they're recording every time the whistle is blowing, blow, blowed, uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> they record it, and they can see, was that a good call or a bad call? So they know statistically which refs are the best, and they can say definitively that refereeing has never been better in the history of the world. But if you watch those games, it looks like it's never been worse. Because in our culture right now, we do not respect the referee. And not just in basketball, 
but uh, in grammar, for example, uh, nobody in here knows when to use a colon or semicolon. I think I can say that with a lot of authority. In the past, you could go to Barnes & Noble, you could buy a little handbook that would tell you definitively, this is when you use it, this is when you don't. This is when you use this word, like blowed, blown, blur, blur. And this is when you should not use it. It was definitive. It was in print. There was authority. But a few years ago, Barnes & Noble called those publishers and said, we're not carrying your book anymore because nobody is buying it. Because we don't need anybody to tell us definitively when to use a colon or a semicolon. We'll just use it whenever we want. Almost in every area of our culture, the referee is being minimized. The person who tells you that was right or that was wrong. And I think that you see this internally. It is easy to look to God in Christ for grace. But when I need truth, when I need direction, when I want a stamp of right and wrong, I'll just look inside. I'll look within. And it feels right or it feels wrong. But John says, no, in Christ is the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. So if you do feel ashamed today, come to Christ who is full of grace. And if you need truth today, and we all do, you come to Christ who is full of truth. Verse 15, and John testified concerning him. This is John the Baptist again for next week. And exclaimed, this one, it was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. John is saying, even though I'm technically older than Jesus, I humble myself before him because he is from the beginning. He is everlasting. Verse 16, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. I hope today, especially if you're young, you get to bump into uh, somebody who has some gray hair or no hair, whichever direction they've gone. Um, Because uh, those uh, saints in here who have lived a little bit longer with Christ, they will testify to the grace upon grace, the blessing upon blessing. It's not ease upon ease. That's that doesn't exist. But the longer you follow Christ and know Him, you, you, you see it's blessing upon blessing. The, the more near He is when you pray, the, the, more, the, the faster you are able to discern His will. I, I think the more richness jumps off the page. They will testify that in fact following Christ is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Stumbled upon this study from last year, 89% of Americans believe in God. Not necessarily the God of the scripture, but just in the God in general, 89%. Uh, 7%, no, excuse me, uh, 9% of people in America are atheists. They classify themselves as atheists. They do not believe that a God exists. Uh, 2% of people, this is interesting, 2% of people say they're atheists, but they're not totally convinced. So it's like there is no God, but there might be a God. In, In Houston, they actually had, specific to Houston, it's a little bit higher, but not that much. We like to think of Houston as being a lot more religious than the rest of the country, but it's not true. 93% of Houstonians believe that there is a God of some kind. 6% are convinced atheists, and 1% are like atheists, but who knows. 100% of those people, and 100% of the people in this room, 
have never seen God. That's what John says. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is God, it says, and is at the Father's side. And that's not just about proximity. It's about relationship. Who is right there with God has revealed Him to us. So in general, there is a God who is unknowable unless we have Christ. And then He is extremely knowable. There is a God who is unapproachable unless we have received the Son. At which point He becomes our Father and is the first person we approach. Jesus has revealed the Father to us So we need to relate to the Father as Jesus related to the Father. And Jesus trusted the Father. Even when he didn't understand things. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was saying, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, the cup of arrest and uh, fake trial and torture and crucifixion. If there's any other way to accomplish all of this, opening the gates so that everybody can be in the kingdom of our Lord Let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He trusted himself to the Father. He loved the Father. And because he loved the Father, he knew he was loved by the Father. And he let himself be loved by the Father. He was obedient to the Father. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. Which makes total sense. Because if you have seen the Father as he truly is, revealed by the Son, then that's your natural response. To pray, to pray, to pray, to pray to pray because why would you not want to pray to the Father that the Son has revealed to us? This is John's introduction to Jesus. Next week we'll start with verse 19. Let's pray.